I know we caught up uh, recently, but it's it's always so good to talk to you. Um, and uh, anyway, I guess before I start blabbering, do you want to introduce yourself? Oh, sure. Yeah. And it's always so good to talk to you. Yeah. Um, Thank you. Yeah, so my name is Aubrey Ford. Uh, among other things, I'm the principal tuba player in the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, uh, BSO for short. And I teach tuba and euphonium at UCLA. And I have a summer gig uh, teaching and playing at the Brevard Music Center. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. And um, I guess I never even really told you like, um, like a lot about the podcast in general. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's super informal, um, borderline <laughs> inappropriate at times. Just, just Great. Being, I love yeah. it, man. Yeah. So like, like are, that. Are we, are we going to, you know, be throwing down some. You know, curse words and all this stuff. Oh, 1,000%. Fuck yeah. Um, right. Yeah, Great. absolutely. Yeah. So, like, like I would not start this if I couldn't be 1,000% myself and my guests, too. So, um, and, I, and, I, and I just say that just because, like, having people on, I guess, from our community, um, classical-wise, like, the, the, the tone for most stuff like this is, like, very, like, NPR kind of. And this is yeah, yeah, total opposite. <laughs> if and um, yeah, so anyway, I guess getting into it, man. Um, again, thank you for for joining today. And, oh yeah, um, absolutely. I guess um, I mean, I have a, I have like a, a, I've always had a ton of questions for you and just any pro tuba player, but you specifically because I know you well. Um, and yeah. I guess just starting from like the, the very beginning, um, just like your, I guess your musical journey, but also just like where you're from, your family. And I guess like, like just why you are who you are today. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so I was, uh, born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and that's where I grew up. Um, I sort of grew up listening to my mom, especially practice the violin. She uh, practiced pretty much every day, and I really enjoyed uh, listening to her, even as a young child. Uh, my dad was actually uh, a professional musician as well. He played the bassoon in the Milwaukee Symphony. Uh, but <laughs> he, he had sort of figured out after about 10 years on the job that he didn't really need to practice much. Um, and he, <laughs> he also figured out that he could just order uh, blank reads from a uh, uh, another colleague in Minnesota uh, who would send them down to him and he could just whittle them how he wanted them and then just bring them to work. And so I, I think I may have heard him practice about once <laughs> in my childhood. Um, and, you know, I, I very vaguely recall hearing him play in the orchestra. I know at some point he was playing maybe the Hummel bassoon concerto uh, on a state uh, state of Wisconsin tour. But that was, that was pretty much all that I remember. And then at, at one point after he left the orchestra, he took out his uh, clarinet and, you know, just putzed around on it one time, literally one time. Uh, my mom also played 
violin in the Milwaukee Symphony sort of as a, you know, first call kind of sub. She played almost everything that the orchestra did. So she was there almost every week. Um, in when I was six, uh, my mom decided that it, uh, the juice was no longer worth the squeeze because, you know, the nature of sub work is that they're often calling you up at the last minute. And she had me and my brother at home and it was, uh, too much. So, uh, she decided to, uh, not continue as a sub, uh, in the symphony. And she started, you know, uh, doing her own, getting more into her own sort of wedding planning, uh, music, uh, for weddings and, you know, events and all that stuff sort of business. Um, my dad continued until 1993 and he essentially decided that it wasn't, you know, the career that he wanted to pursue anymore Mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. Uh, many of which I can relate to, you know, he was, uh, on like a negotiating committee, um, in the orchestra and, uh, things were not going well and he, he just couldn't stand it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and apparently he came home one day so wound up uh, and he'd been talking about quitting for a while. And my mom said, you know, if, if, if this is it, if you want to leave, you know, it's, it's okay. I support that. And so the next day he did, he, he went to work and he basically gave them his letter. And, you know, by the end of that season, he had, he had left the orchestra. And the, the legendary thing is that he packed his bassoon up for his last concert, which was a concert in the park during the summer. He packed his bassoon up and he says he padded it twice on the case. And that was the last he ever played of it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. There is, you know, there, that, that takes a lot of uh, gumption. Yeah. You know, it takes, it takes a lot of uh, guts to do that. So yeah. yeah. And you only, yeah, you only you know, get that, like that, that moment. That's a story of, his career in the symphony. Yeah, um, and I, sorry to to respond to you. Like you, you only get like a handful of those in in life of like you know those those moments when you're just so sure that something is over or just something has yeah. begun. Like, and but like when you know, you really, really know. And and that that's that's I just you saying that. I thought of like the couple of times so far in my life where I've just been like, man, like it's been great but this just has to come to an end. So that that's that's insane, man. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's that's why you are where you are right now, you yeah. know. You're in LA. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, you're you're doing all sorts of amazing things that I don't think, you know, would have been as easy to do in Baltimore, right? You yeah. you had that sort of epiphany. And we all have moments in life like um, but they're they're especially they're especially prescient in the musical world because you know we work so hard for something and then when we make a decision to pivot you know it it could have disastrous consequences and you could say that about everybody that makes a decision like that but in the music world you know our our lives are tenuous yeah. you know so our our livelihoods are tenuous yeah so you know just sort of figuring out okay well I'm going to do this and oh my god I hope it works otherwise I'm completely screwed. You know, so anyway, um, yeah, so it was actually right before my dad left the orchestra that I decided, you know, I joined the band Um, and this was in fourth grade. They had everybody file into the auditorium and tell you about band and they (laughs) they gave you these really shitty Xerox photos of instruments. Uh, so it was just this grainy photo of a French horn, grainy photo of a tuba. And I actually chose the bassoon first. You know, my dad played the bassoon. It's like, all right, you know, 
I want to be just like my dad, just like a lot of kids uh, at that age. And uh, it turned out school didn't have any. So uh, my fallback uh, was the tuba. And I chose the tuba as my second choice because I thought it looked cool. Um, and I was, a, I was a pretty heavy kid. I was, I was uh, you know, fairly overweight. I was big. You know, those of you who haven't met me know that I'm, uh, may not know that I'm uh, six foot five. So I was both heavy set and rather tall for a, a kid of that age. And so, um, you know, I ended up with the tuba and it, it seemed like a good fit. Uh, I didn't take it seriously. I, I practiced a bunch, but, you know, I, I didn't have any you know, real ambition other than winning a practice competition in which, you know, in fourth grade, that meant that you got movie tickets uh, to movies that you can only go to yeah. during like weekdays at like 2 p.m. Uh, <laughs> this was back in 1993. So, you know, the, 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 the tickets only had validity for like, you know, 25% of the show times. You definitely couldn't use them for any of the new releases. Um, so it was just kind of, you know, total scam. <laughs> um, so yeah, so, um, I ended up, uh, you know, besides the practicing, just sort of not taking it very seriously. And then, uh, when I was in ninth grade, I decided that I really loved it uh, because, you know, I'd watched my parents do it. And of course, I saw all of that through rose colored glasses. And I had a new band director at high school who, you know, was sort of fresh out of graduate school. And he was always sort of rosily talking about his time as a musician. So I just, you know, I just kind of went for it. And I told my dad and, uh, Oh, there's that Wisconsin in me, right? The dad, right? <laughs> oh, dad. It comes out very occasionally on certain words. You know, I've tried to beat it down over the years. And uh, yeah, it's it's still around. Um, <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah. Um, so I told my dad and, um, you know, he... <laughs> I used to say he, he kind of hit the wall. Um, and he heard me say that once on another podcast. And he was like, I didn't really hit the wall. To me, I think as a ninth grade kid, I was like, oh my God, my dad's pissed that I'm like doing this. Um, but I think it was more like, you know, you don't really know what you're doing. You don't <laughs> practice. You don't know the music, you know, all this stuff. I was just some ninth grade kid and, you know, not very good at playing the tuba, but I really wanted to do it. So um, I, you know, just started like, I started practicing really hard and he was like, you know, you really, at this point, I, I don't think you should be a music major, but I started practicing, you know, an hour, a little bit more a day and got serious about it and started listening to classical music on the local classical music radio station. And, you know, I did that for a little while. Um, and, you know, I think my dad saw how seriously I was taking it and he said, well, you know, you, you could probably do music education. I was like, great. You know, that's something. So, you know, and meanwhile, like my passion for the tuba is growing. You know, my passion for music is growing. I'm listening to stuff every day. And for some reason, you know, I was, maybe it's because of who my parents were, but I was actually a lot more into uh, Baroque music at the time than I was romantic music. Wow. So I listened to a lot of music that didn't involve the tuba, yeah. which probably explains quite a bit about my teaching um, and my whole sort of attitude about uh playing the instrument. So, um, you know, I did, a, I did a bunch of that. I did a whole lot of practice. I was practicing like almost two hours a day at that point. And my dad said, well, maybe you could be music performance. And he hooked me up with uh, 
weekly tuba lessons with the uh, tuba player in the Milwaukee Symphony, who at that time was Alan Baer. And so um, as, as a sophomore I, in high school, I started studying with Al. And, you know, he really took me under his wing, really showed me the ropes. Um, he had a whole bunch of just really uh, gung-ho students back then. Mm. And he was, he was really gung-ho with all of us. Um, and, you know, so he, he had just this sort of really groundbreaking group of high school and college tuba players who mm. were just, just really going for it. Um, and so, you know, I was, I was one of them and, uh, yeah, so that's, that's basically how, how I got through my childhood in Milwaukee. Yeah. It's, it's really, you know, it's, I, it, to me, it's totally normal, but I think the more I, I describe it, the more I sort of realize that it's a kind of weird and, you know, unusual story. Yeah. No, that's cool, man. I, I've always wondered um, what like life would be like with uh, parents that were musically inclined in any way. I mean, like, like obviously to have parents that made it to the big leagues is one thing, but even just like parents that like, oh, I, I mess with the keyboard every now and then. I at least like know what I'm looking at when I just like see your music homework or something. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm the first musician in my family, uh, well, I'd say like first musician who 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 deliberately went after music, but everyone in my in my family is very very musical, and um, I think uh, uh, two uh, two of the my like I, I have perfect pitch, and and two of my sisters of my three have it, and my grand and it's just like man, like what what's 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 happening? Why 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 do we all like music? Because like as a kid, I would wonder why my parents would or my mom especially would say my name in like the same pitches all the time and I don't think I don't think she was like doing that on purpose but um I like became like I became like very aware of it and like I and then I I started paying attention like as I got older and I guess like I stopped going to church what like around like 13 or so and but like I, I would before then I was I would I was always sitting next to my mom. I had to like sit right next to her because like I was that kid that you just had to keep an eye on. And she um <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and and like hearing her sing too. And I think like people were looking around too because just like, yo, who the fuck is this person? But like net like then like hearing her sing, like her being spot on with every single pitch yeah. and just going uh, and like <clears throat> now that I think about that. I'm like, okay, so this that at least it's not the origin story like doesn't come from like nothing or nowhere. It's like so I, I feel like had my family and of course, you know, me being first gen and music not really being like the most lucrative way to feed yourself in nineteen eighties Nigeria. Um sure. you know, uh I, I'm super privileged to have, you know, I guess to come here and um you know, one, find somewhere that teaches this stuff. And then two, like find people that wants to pay to listen to this stuff like that. Both of right. those things is, is a very, um, yeah, that's a, that's a big privilege. So, I mean, that's kind of my origin into to music, I guess, besides obviously like yourself, um, eventually just falling in love with the tuba at some point. And, um, you know, just like having the audacity to be like, I can do this and go after it. So um, that's cool, man. I mean, I, I guess, uh, so I guess when you went, because I mean, just looking at your your past and um, in terms of like your, your bio 
um, I forget where, but uh, like you've won competitions in college and you've done, obviously you're doing really well for yourself now. Um, So, I mean, do you, was there like a moment where, was the quality of your practice sessions just always very high or was there a moment where... Um, Come on. (laughs) Who who can say that? Who can fucking say that? Nobody can say that. Get out of here. When did you you really make that that turn as a musician? Well, before I answer that, I want to ask you a question. Yeah, sure. Which which is when you were growing up, Mm -hmm. you said you went to church and there was probably a lot of music there, right? Yeah. Did your parents also play any music around the house, like just on the radio or whatever? Oh, yeah. all the time, all the time. What kind of, what kind of music did they play? Um, so Nigerian music, uh, like old school Nigerian music. Um, yep. A lot of like, so they came here late 80s. So just like a lot of the American artists that were just like big at the time and moving forward. So like a lot of like soul and funk and like, um, oh, yeah. yeah, like Mariah Carey and like, like Mary J and yeah. So like a lot of R and B soul and, and funk, uh, Michael Jackson, who probably for me is like my first, the first like musical thing I can remember being like, I, like I want to be that or do that in music like that for sure. Like I was, um, I like broke my VCR rewinding the thriller uh, tape <laughs> like over and yeah, over again yeah and and, and, it, awesome. yeah and it was just like to to uh like because i i just i kept you know because the 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 like the the longer version of the thriller video is like 14 minutes and 36 seconds so like the dancer that means the dance routine is also much much longer so i would just like rewind it and um kind of like similar to shitty practice sessions as like a middle schooler. Like if I messed up at like the nine minute mark, I'd go all the way back to the beginning. Cause I had to, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, so See, any, and, and yeah, yeah, go ahead. That explains actually quite a lot, the perfect pitch. And there's a theory about this, which is basically that the more you're listening to, you know, just sort of music that's really, for lack of a better word, you know, sort of pure, right? Mm. And I would put like funk and soul into that category. Jazz, right? Classical, church music for sure. The more you're listening to basically 12-tone music and you're not exposed to too much noise, you know, too much extraneous noise, um, the more you're likely to have a really good sense of pitch, if not perfect pitch. And I experienced that a little bit myself. I mean, I, I I don't really have perfect pitch. I sort of do. I, I think I have what you would probably describe as good pitch memory. Mm. Um, I can, I can, if I hear something, I'm going to remember it for days. Yeah. Um, but uh, I um, went to school, uh, uh, college, with a, a, a group of siblings, and every one of them had perfect pitch. And it's because Jeez. their parents wow. didn't allow them to listen to anything but classical music growing up. Wow. Yeah. So and but their their sense of pitch was crazy. I mean, you know, the, the teacher would be sitting at the piano just plonking out notes in all registers, and you know, they would be like C sharp, E flat, G, you know, all this other stuff, just blah, 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 you know, yeah. just as fast as as he possibly could. And, you know, I mean that that still sticks in my memory today. Yeah. You know, just that these these uh this family just, you know, was 
freaky good at that stuff. So that's sort of the theory. Yeah. You know, that's sort of the working theory on that. Um, but no, my, my practice sessions were, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think everybody sort of ends up going through a period of quantity over quality, right? So when I was a freshman in uh, college, uh, so I actually started college at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, which was really valuable because it allowed me to keep studying with Al for a couple of years. Um, and uh, so those those first couple of years, you know, I remember asking him, how much should I be practicing? And he said, well, three or four hours a day. Okay, so that's what I did. And, you know, as, as just an 18-year-old kid, there there wasn't a whole lot of let's say practicing smarter going on in my head. It's just like, all right, this I'm working on this piece and it needs to be a lot better, you know, by this point. So I'm just going to shed it over and over and over again. And of course, as, as many of us know at this point, if you do that all the time, you're, you're going to end up, you know, maybe making progress, um, for about a fifth of the time that you're practicing. The rest of the time, you're probably going to be banging your head against the wall and maybe even instilling bad habits. So no, my, my practice sessions were garbage. And so when I, in spite of all that, I was, you know, reasonably successful. And, you know, I, I transferred to Cleveland Institute of Music and, uh, you know, I, I, I had to get out of Milwaukee. You know, uh, this UWM, you know, was a fine institution, of course, and an amazing teacher, but like uh, the student body at the time was like 90% music education and like mm. 10% performance. I just had to get the fuck out of there because <laughs> not because I didn't like any of those people, but because nobody did what I did, yeah. you know, um, they, they were few and far between. Um, you know, the orchestra had like two violas, the school orchestra. I was just like, oh, I need to get out of here. I need to be around people that, you know, are doing what I want to do and they're working at it every single day. And so I ended up going to Cleveland Institute of Music and of course studying with the late great Ron Bishop, um, who I miss every day. Wonderful man. Um, but, um, yeah, so, you know, um, I'd been there for a little while and, uh, I ended up making some friends at other conservatories, um, Curtis, Juilliard, all that other stuff. And, you know, I, was, I remember hanging out with some of these friends at a summer festival once and, you know, we were talking about practicing and they said, yeah, I only practice like an hour and a half, two hours a day. And these guys were ama- amazing. Yeah. They were such great players. And <laughs> many of them have, you know, incredible jobs today. Um, and I, here I was sitting there, you know, thinking about my three, three and a half, four hours of practice and just how much time I'd been wasting, you know? (laughs) So after that, I started really thinking about practicing smarter, not harder. And I started really, you know, after several years had gone by from that, I really started thinking about, you know, getting organized and how to strategize and all this stuff, you know? So much of my time as a kid had been spent, you know, as this really passionate, um, really ambitious tuba player. But also, you know, in a lot of ways, I was sort of, you know, I was a B student, so I wasn't like unintelligent or anything. 
but I was sort of, you know, I was a clumsy kid, like a lot of tuba players. <laughs> and I, you know, uh, wasn't, uh, wasn't all that, uh, proactive about being organized. Right. Um, and you know, I mean, uh, I didn't, I didn't take a lot of responsibility for, you know, what I looked like. Actually that changed, uh, starting in college, I started working out a lot and, you know, lost like 70 pounds and all that stuff. So it, it did, you know, stuff really did gradually over time go from, you know, me just being this, you know, sort of podunk Wisconsin tuba player who had a lot of ambition to drive to being the person who I am today, who I would describe as being a lot more you know, strategic in the way that I think mm -hmm. a lot more. And I try to be a lot more organized. I try to really take care of how I present myself to people. And I try to be a really, really thoughtful musician. Yeah. So, you know, th those are just sort of the, you know, that ended up being the transformation yeah. uh, from, you know, really basically uh, uh, banging my head against the wall, frustration, you know, just like, <laughs> impotent masculine energy practice yeah, sessions yeah. <laughs> to, to being, you know, a lot more uh, thoughtful and, you know, trying to be as intelligent about everything as I can. Yeah, no, that that's, um, and obviously like that comes out anytime I'm having a, a lesson with you. Um, and like, so when I, I, I started Peabody at uh, 17 and um, <laughs> up, up until that point, like my experience with school, I was just getting like detentions and suspended like every other week. And oh, really? uh, yeah, yeah, I was I was that kid like like w all through school, like till like I almost wasn't allowed to go to my graduation just because they were like, look, we have so much shit to handle and like we cannot keep you in like the back of our life. <laughs> <laughs> and um yeah wow. yeah no I, I see you could have fooled me i would have never guess that <laughs> yeah no any anyone <laughs> anyone who knew me before like my junior year of college basically can concur with with uh all of that I, and and because some something happened around like my sophomore year summer where i like just realized that um it's just like not cool to fuck around all the time. And <laughs> um yeah. Shout out to to David Federley too, by the way, just because um he tolerated all of that. Um and uh yeah, no, I was I was I was just like I was super hard headed and uh he's like the he was probably the first like wall that I really ran into as a kid. Like I I was able to like sweet talk and just like talk my way out of like literally anything um, to, to anyone. And then like federally just like really, really put me in my place in a way that um, like no one uh, ever had. And yeah, I still didn't listen to him as much as I should have, but like it, it, yeah. His he his lessons then like, like, cause I've texted him a couple, like several times over the past a uh, couple years and just been like, man, like something you told me back in like 2014 uh, is like now yeah. resonating. And I really, really thank you for that. And um, so, yeah, he, he, he was like a, he had a big hand in just like me eventually realizing that what I was doing was an art form and um, like, and, and I, and I had to redefine 
just like what I thought hard work was. Like I, I think in my head, I I like associated hard work with like literally if I'm not like sweating and like <laughs> in pain or some shit. Yeah. Like I mean that that that's an exaggeration, but like my 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 definition of hard work was just that like there was a physicality to some extent to hard work. And I'd go into the um, practice sessions like a jock just going like, yeah, like I just have to like play this a million times and like not actually figure out what the problems are in this. And um, yeah, and then, I mean, it, it kind of comes full circle just because then by the time I got to you and so I studied with um, uh, uh, Velvet Brown who then like took my my analyzing of music and like also just like technical awareness of playing the tuba itself to a, another level. Um, I only, I was only able to, to play with her for a year, but she just like, she made me aware of a lot of stuff and, and I got uh, better pretty quickly. And then um, getting to you. Um, and it's just funny because, because you're, you're uh, actually one of the things that you taught me that's really helped um that's like not tuba related, even though there's a million tuba related things was, was like you not like your nothing about the process has ever really been personal that I've seen. Like, like I, I've made like, like, like the tuba was so heavily tied into like my identity as a person. And like, I took it so seriously that, um, it, it, I just remember this one lesson. <laughs> you were like, you know what, OC? I think I know what your problem is. I think you just care too much. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was like, and I was like, like it, it was, it was the way that you said it, and where I just instantly knew what you were talking about. And I was like, okay, yeah. I get it because. And a lot of times you'll be like, hey, like, like I'll play something and then you'll in a very like nonchalant way, just pick up your horn and just be like, oh, you know, try it this way. And it just took me a while to realize that like that attitude of just looking at this thing as like a thing you are doing and not like adding all this external pressure and like, like what it means and your whole life and career. Like, like just when you pick up the tuba, you're just thinking about what you need to do in that moment. So I, I, I thank you for that just because just like seeing that. And then of course that one day when you're just like, yo, just chill basically. Like that's, that's basically how you said it. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, okay, like, like I get it. I, I kind of get it now. So like now I guess the past what year or two, um, that's where like the quality of my my practice sessions and it being less personal for me, um, uh, just it you know just looking at it a bit more scientifically and like just analytically than just like this thing where it's like okay I'm picking up like my life's work and like now it's time to be the best tuba player in the world like that that's that's like what I had in my head anytime I picked up the horn and it was just adding so much more pressure than necessary. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm going on, but I'm, I bet there's, Oh oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. But I bet there's a moment where I guess you, I mean, you've kind of talked about it a little bit, but do you relate to that at all? Oh, 110%. I mean, first of all, I just want to say, you know, shout out to Dave Federley, shout out to velvet. Yeah. They're listening, you know, Uh, Dave, Dave, of course has been, a tremendous, um, you know, just really welcoming and uh, uh, source welcoming person and a source of wisdom, uh, you know, for, you know, my personal journey here in Baltimore. Of course, he 
just decided to move away. Um, and of course, I didn't get to see him. Um, I'm sure I, I'm sure our paths will cross again soon. But um, he he was really just a remarkably um, a good person to me uh, as my predecessor. Um, and, you know, just really, really always happy to talk and always happy to, um, you know, give advice and all that stuff. Um, which, you know, I think you really, you kind of need for an orchestra like this. It's a 52 week orchestra and, you know, it, it's kind of a slog, you know, at times it's a job that I love mm -hmm. and, and an orchestra that I love. Uh, it sounds, it's one of the best sounding orchestras on the planet. And, uh, you know, the, the, the work that we do is, is fantastic, but at the same time, yeah, it's, it's a slog. Like yeah. you gotta, you gotta wake up every day, you know, uh, for all the working weeks of the year and, you know, get in your seat and, you know, not dick around on your phone, yeah. uh, while you're in rehearsal, you know, that, that stays in your pocket and, and, you know, be focused and really be prepared. That's a huge part of playing in the BSO is, is preparation, uh, more so than any other orchestra I've played with. Um, so, you know, it's, 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 uh, it requires a lot of sort of mental focus and energy and again, strategizing and, and, and Dave was really helpful with that is where I'm going with that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, regarding what you said, uh, about, you know, being a young student and basically, you know, fucking around all the time. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll just say to you that as somebody who's been teaching, you know, at UCLA for eight years and, you know, at the university level for, another three years beyond that. Um, we, we get students like that all the time, dude. You know, we get students like that all the time. And, you know, most teachers who I know um, end up, you know, with students like that, basically, you know, teaching how to play the instrument and telling them what to do and how to, how to work through stuff and how to get better. And, you know, um, a lot of the times it's just sort of a, a waiting game to see, you know, when things click. Um, in your situation, they did. And in the situation of a number of students who, you know, started out in the same way you're describing, it clicked, you know. I've got a couple right now who are just totally going gangbusters. I'm super proud of them. Um, there were times during their undergraduate degree where that was not the case. And I tried to more or less be hands off and just sort of let them live that and you know because i think so much of what we do has to be self-initiated mm. and you've discovered that right yeah you know you've discovered how incredibly important that is and and look at what you've managed to accomplish in what in 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 uh retrospect you know the further out you get from this the more you'll realize that this is a very short period of time yeah. between when you came to that realization and today um, so, you know, I mean, that's, that's what we look for as teachers. Some students never get it. Some, a lot, uh, some students, you know, will go through school and they'll never figure it out and, you know, they'll graduate and eventually they'll decide, well, wait, I, I shouldn't have done this. I, I should go do my own thing, you know? And that's, that's the onus is on them to sort of, you know, get to that point. Yeah. Um, so you know, and then there are students who, you know, from day one arrive and are just like, you know, hauling ass the entire time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. But, you know, I mean, <laughs> I think the fact that Dave was so, um, 
you know, kind of poker face with you about, you know, going through that whole, you know, phase of your life, um, you know, is in, indicative, in, indicative, indicative of, mm. you know, just the fact that we're, we're honestly quite used to this. And, you know, uh, if you ever end up teaching at the collegiate level, you'll run into it too. Um, so, um, yeah. And then, um, the question that you had was remind me again. Oh, I guess just, uh, your own, um, journey in the sense like, um, Oh yeah. Yeah, and and on top yeah. of that, on top of like like whenever that happened precisely where um you you just started to approach like tuba um um just a lot more professionally uh were was there also a moment where um there was like a distinct cuz I I had this but like a, a distinct realization where like the human that you are, Aubrey, and like this thing that you're doing, like have to be two different entities. Did you ever, did you have, was there a moment like that for you? Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. So, you know, I, I think I realized that, you know, I don't, I, I never really fucked around that much to be perfectly honest. Mm. Um, in a way I kind of, you know, changed my path a couple of times as a tuba player. Um, I, when I was a junior, and I had won a whole bunch of co- competitions before this, but when I was a junior in college, I had won a number of cash competitions. And I was seriously considering kind of going the solo route with the, you know, idea of eventually winning um, like Mark Norkirchen or uh, 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 Concert Artist Guild would have been great. Mm. You know, Young Concert Artists, one of those big competitions that involve, you know, violin and cello and and then i'd be the tuba player that you know sort of blew everybody away i won a lot of money you know doing those competitions i actually didn't do any of the tuba competitions i didn't do any of the falcones or any of the itea competitions or any of that i i did all like concerto competitions open call you know i was in missouri i was in minnesota i was i was all over the place winning these competitions Mm. um or if not winning you know at least placing and, and getting prize money as a result. Um, so yeah, I did that a lot. Um, and it, it sort of dawned on me that there, you know, the, the odds of, of playing tuba in an orchestra are just a little bit better than the odds of succeeding as a tuba soloist. So, uh, I eventually had to put my focus into that. So that was sort of my version of, you know, not fucking around anymore. It's just like, all right, I, I better really learn how to play, you know, the tuba as an orchestral instrument so that I can, you know, feed myself, Mm -hmm. give myself a decent chance of actually being able to do that. Um, As far as separating one's self from the instrument, um, all credit goes to uh, Mark Lawrence, who, uh, as you may know, was the principal trombonist in the San Francisco Symphony. Mm. And um, he was a uh, the low brass teacher at Music Academy of the West. Um, and I studied with him there for three summers. And then right after that, he was head of brass at Colburn. Um, and I was there for three years with him there. And Mark is by far one of the most um, sophisticated people when it comes to the mental game of playing the instrument. Um, and so, you know, among many of the really valuable kernels that he told me uh, was a saying that said, you know, basically, um, you know, 
you are not the instrument, you know, don't, mm-hmm. don't spend a hundred percent of your waking hour thinking about the tuba, right? Yeah. You know, if you put the tuba down or if you couldn't play the tuba, you would still be yourself. You would still be Aubrey Ford. What do you do with yourself then? You know, if you were to be broken away from the tuba, you know, what would become of you? Would you completely fall apart or would you have to figure it out? Well, you'd have to figure it out. So, you know, um, while you're playing the instrument, you know, it's really important to have other hobbies. There's you, the person, you know, that has hobbies. And I have all kinds of hobbies. I love to run. Um, you know, I, I uh, am at this point pretty focused on, like, my physical health. Um, I love to cook. Um, and I really love to travel. Travel is, like, my probably my, probably my biggest hobby. Um, and it, it helps that I do quite a bit of that as part of my living, but then I also really like to figure out where in the world I'm going next. Um, so, you know, um, spending time on that is, is really, really important to being able to focus and have a healthy relationship, focus on and have a healthy relationship with the instrument. Um, so yeah, that's, that's basically, um, where that came from for me. Yeah. Uh, but it what it wasn't my idea. It was it was Mark Lawrence's yeah. idea. Man, that's cool. I mean, yeah, that that having that moment is um obviously so important uh for a number of reasons, but definitely for your mental health in terms of like not um uh I mean, you're 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 ha- and it's not it's bigger than the tuba. Like no one's happiness should be centered around something as volatile as like how well do they feel they played that day you know um and uh yeah i mean that yeah that's that's something you can you know we could go on for forever about and um man it's interesting i was i was listening to this um i think dave Chappelle. uh he was saying on a a podcast yeah he was saying something about how he um, he travels a bunch and hangs out with like non-famous people in like places of the country that you know you maybe wouldn't think like is worth going on for quote-unquote vacation. But he just says like like when he's on the road doing uh, shows that he he really makes a point to just like hang out with non-famous people, and he says that it adds to his um, like you can't you can't be funny anymore. Um, if you're like only doing like rich people shit, like, like, like being able to relate to like people's stories. I mean, if you're trying to make everyday people laugh and you don't spend time with everyday people, you might get out of touch. If like, you don't know if like the next five people in your phone that you've texted are like all in the Avengers or something, you know? So he, 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 uh, and, and I, and I say that just because do you think there's like, in in music, um, do do you think for uh, for the people who like just aren't like you know because there's people in classical music that are really just built like there really are robots that like it doesn't matter what the fuck is going on in their lives or yeah. anything they're just like those excerpts whatever the fuck they need to do it is just set in stone but for like those of us that have like a beating heart and you know are like human. <laughs> Do you do you think there's like a, a ton of there's some truth to like um, at least at a young age as you're developing this like those experiences adding to the quality of your life that then like make you more successful in this in some way is is there any truth to that? 
certainly there is truth to it. It's not an absolute, right. you know, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've known a number of musicians over the years who, you know, especially when you do achieve whatever that dream is, whether it's, you know, being a soloist or playing chamber music or playing in an orchestra or what have you, um, you know, you, you eventually get there and that's, that's great. Good for you. Bravo or brava. Um, so, but then what, you know, you've got a job, you go to it, you know, uh, people aren't actively phoning you up to go solo elsewhere, for example, right. unless you are a soloist. Yeah. But in that case, that too is a job. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So what do you do with your time? beyond that. And I think that for a lot of people who are sort of subjected to the prodigy, you know, sort of upbringing, it's, it's really tough to sort of figure that out. Now there aren't too many tuba players like that, right? You know, most tuba players that I know had a fairly well-rounded, you know, childhood Mm -hmm. upbringing. So, you know, most tuba players I know have, have hobbies, but you know, a a lot of um, like string players, for example, pianists, for example, um, you know, had to sort of figure out what they were actually kind of into mm-hmm. once they, you know, sort of quote unquote succeeded professionally. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's difficult. I, I, I had a, I had a really fun conversation at one point um, when I was at a festival in Oregon playing, we had Augustin Hedelich, um, I'm probably butchering that pronunciation, <laughs> but uh, it's Augustin Hedelich was uh, doing a uh, uh, concerto and, you know, because of the way this festival structured, we all hung out together. Soloists, you know, Yuja Wang was there um, and, and Augustine and, and the orchestra basically, and, and the conductor, Teddy Abrams. And, um, you know, so we're all at the bar drinking and, uh, and, you know, Augustine's talking about how much he loves watching Starcraft, you know, nice. uh, episodes and you know he's he's a gamer himself but you know i mean he's a lot more at that time at least a lot more interested in just watching the tournaments and all that stuff you know so um it's 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 always interesting to see you know what these people who were just like you know music 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 growing up are actually then you know the hobbies that they then develop once they you know sort of figure out how to do what they plan to do as a career right um yeah yeah. Super sweet guy, by the way. Man. Yeah. And you know what? I probably should have added to that that question the assumption that someone like wants to be a well-rounded person that like has friends, has fun, is and then like and also just the importance of um loving what you do in uh from a longevity perspective. It's like could could you go on like this for the next 40, 50 years, like just holding yourself in a practice room? Uh, forever. So it, it's, it's, I guess that's, that's what I should have um, added to the quest. Like that assumption that like someone wants to be that well-rounded person, but uh, you know, you, you definitely do. Um, there definitely are people that really just do not care. Like it's just, it's the music <laughs> and they just have to like, they're just getting to that goal, like in a very, very straight path. Um, you know, and it works out sometimes it, it doesn't, but um, yeah, yeah, no, that, that's, that's, it's, it's, it's just interesting to me. Like the, the, the many ways that there are to get to this, um, level that we're all trying to, to, to get to like some, like, 
you know, um, and, and, I, and I say that just because like there's prodigies that have started at 16, but then like whether for mental reasons or whatever have like retired at 24 because maybe there was just yeah. a part in their life where they just did not like, they were like, oh shit, I'm a person. And like, I haven't done any like person kind of stuff. Um, yeah. 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 Well, anyway, I guess uh, um, moving past that. Um, so uh, lately, right? Like, like you're a super, super smart guy. Um, and, and, but like, and not, but, but you know, like, like not like, not even, you know, because fuck book smart, like book smart is one thing, you know, but, okay. but like smart in that, like, um, something happens, you can sit back and like go through different perspectives, like that kind of intelligence. And, and, um, and you know, that being said, I feel like, you have, I guess, both the intellectualness and like like emotional intelligence to if you wanted to be like some high paid banker or high paid lawyer or this or that, you could do it. So that being said, like having experiences where obviously um, um, this kind of job, wanting to play the tuba professionally, um, you get to the, you know, we, we get to the level where we want to in our, our thirties, when we see our friends who graduated as engineers at 22, like immediately doing what they're doing. And right. I guess in the, the past, however many years, um, uh, you know, struggles with, uh, orchestras, whether it's, it's because there's, there's, uh, money issues or this or that, I guess what, what, what is what's kept someone like you from just not going like fuck it? I know I could make a shit ton of money doing something else somewhere else, and like just still like tolerating shit like this. I mean, what? Yeah, yeah. Can can you speak on that at all? Absolutely. I mean, in a way, I'm sort of, I'm sort of uniquely positioned because I grew up with my dad, who you know uh, was not unvocal about complaining about you know, different aspects of the job, right? Um, so in a way, I, I was already just a little bit salty growing into it. And, you know, you, you hear these stories, right? So my, my career tra trajectory as an orchestral musician is kind of, um, I don't know if it's unusual, but it's certainly, you know, it, it certainly happened on a ladder, Um I started in the Albany Symphony, as you may know, and then um, I ended up winning a job in West Virginia Symphony. And this was all while I was living in totally different states. I was playing in Albany while I was living in Houston. I was playing in West Virginia while I was living in LA. Um, and then I played in Santa Barbara. And, you know, uh, and then eventually I won my first sort of quote unquote full-time job playing in Charlotte. And, you know, you, you hear things as you go. And it's true, you know, the, the vibe in a regional orchestra is so much more just sort of friendly and easygoing because, you know, everybody's friends. You you see each other once or twice a month. And at the end of the month, you, you know, go home. And if anything shitty happened um, at work, you kind of forget about it and you go do your other stuff. Mm. Um, and then you hear that as you sort of going up, start going up into the upper echelons, you know, you, the tension sort of increases, right? Yeah. The, the temperature of the room, you know, increases. And that was certainly true with my first, you know, sort of um, full-time gig in Charlotte. And that's definitely true 
um, in this orchestra. Uh, so, you know, um, and that's, that's partially just because, you know, you're there all the time and, you know, um, it's, it, it's sort of the, 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 the institution, um, of the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra or, you know, the San Francisco Symphony or Pittsburgh or whatever. They, they take on lives of their own, right? Yeah. So, you know, it, it just, it's always a part of you, um. So separating yourself from that becomes even more important. Um, I would say that, you know, growing up with, in the circumstance that I did, I think I realized at some point that I have to really love what I do. And, you know, that's what keeps me going. And I think there's also like an element of... Um, just having to be as self-aware as possible about your attitude mm. towards the gig, because um, sometimes the gig is really tough. And, you know, my experience in Baltimore has been particularly hard, you know, to be totally honest, because uh, when I started here, uh, the first thing that I did as a member of the BSO was to go to a strike vote, right? Wow. Not go to a rehearsal, but to go take a vote on strike authorization. Um, and then as pretty much everybody knows at this point, uh, we were locked out before the end of my first season. And then as we were coming back from that, uh, the pandemic started. And so I've been here for three seasons and then not one of them has run its full course. Um, so, you know, I could very easily be saying, this is, this sucks. I don't want to do this anymore. And a lot of people frankly have throughout the pandemic, those who are in, you know, especially worse situations than I am right now. Those who are studying it in college are saying, you know, I can't, I can't do this anymore. This, this is, this is too much. Mm. Uh, the odds suck. I'm not making any money. I need to go do something else. More power to him. You know, realizing that is, is so critical. Um, to your happiness. For me, um, I couldn't imagine myself doing anything else. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and uh, it's because I love the music so much. It's because I love performing for audiences so much, communicating the music to the audience and, um, you know, enriching the culture of the community in which I live is super important. And then the other side of that coin is that I really just adore teaching um, students like yourself, to be perfectly oh, honest. You. you know, I mean, <laughs> students who are actively um, engaged in, you know, becoming better as musicians, as, you know, in your case, as a tuba player, um, but also in becoming better people through the power of music. I mean, that is so, you know valuable to me because it makes me become a better person and it makes me become a better player um, to, to wield the responsibility of being a teacher of somebody who, you know, a number of people who are working so hard to succeed as musicians is, you know, um, if you're, if you're not taking it seriously, it can be a crippling, you know, sort of weight um, so you have to take it seriously. You have to, you know, put your whole self into it to try to make, 
make it so that that student has the best chance to succeed than they can. Now, now my definition of success doesn't necessarily mean that you're playing in the BSO. You're going to be my you know, successor. Um, although for anybody that wants to do that, I'll do everything I can to make that happen. But my definition of success is basically, you know, doing what you want to do in the music industry. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, as long as you have a passion that drives you to do what you want to do, then I'm, I'm invested in, in ensuring that you succeed as a musician. Um, so, you know, that's, that's basically how I, how I keep, um, you know, my side of my perspective on music, all sunshine and rainbows. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Man, that, yeah, that's, that's, uh, yeah, that, that's really, that's really, um, awesome that you have that perspective. And you, you had said something earlier about being really self-aware about your, your attitude and, um, it, it is really easy to, uh, you know, you, you walk into a room and, Maybe, you know, there's a group of people or whoever just like, you know, they're saying something negative or there's just like a, a, a just a negative energy. And um, I, I think to have an awareness to, um, you know, provide a, a, a different perspective, whether that's just for yourself or you as a teacher for, for students, when you like see that that someone might have that. Um, negative energy it's, it's just really valuable because I mean we we all have moments where it's like you feel like shit and it's so easy to pile on to that even though it's not in your best interest to like keep feeling like shit it's still so easy for some reason to do that and um so yeah I mean hats off hats off to you just because I, I think some of the things you've experienced as a um musician whether it's like uh uh you, the people that you work for might not uh, see your value or this or that. There's so many things that you could take um, personally and like have the right to like be like very, very angry about that to, mm -hmm. I guess, to have a, a mindset where you um, you're just like, okay, what's next? Like what needs to be done? It's super rare, man. So, I mean, that that's off to you. Uh, Thanks man. Yeah. 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 You know, I mean, in a way, the adversity has helped, right? The fact that we were locked out. The fact that I now actually this season am serving on the BSO Players Committee, the sort of top committee that, you know, makes all the, bar does all the bargaining and makes all the decisions with management. Um, you know, that has helped me to, I, I got to be honest, it's helped me to actually maintain a positive outlook because you. I think you kind of need that adversity, you know, to... At least I do. I think I need to thrive on a little bit, thrive on that adversity to, you know, affect a positive outcome. Um, so that's actually that's actually been really valuable. Um, the fact that we managed to go through that lockout and come out of it and actually create a future for the BSO as a result that was quite a bit better than where it was before the lockout. Yeah. Um, was, you know, totally, totally amazing. And to have, you know, taken part in that is, is, is great. Yeah. So I would just say one thing, which is that, you know, um, the self-awareness part that you mentioned is, is just so important. And there were moments, you know, in the past, you know, nine years of playing in full-time orchestras where it's very easy 
to get sucked into the darkness, right? Your, your outlook on everything is dark. And, you know, if you're listening to this and you're, um, you know, wondering what that looks like, it's basically when you go to a rehearsal and everything sucks. <laughs> you know, the conductor sucks, the orchestra sucks, you hate this music, you sound bad, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then every time you go to, it's okay if that happens one time, right? You know, it's, it's like, if it's a one-off incident, fine. But if every time you go to rehearsal, you're saying that, you should, you should fucking do something about that. Yeah. You should not allow yourself to continue saying that. And so, you know, that takes some serious inward reflection. Yeah. to say, you know, I got to stop thinking like this or I'm just going to be a, you know, sad sack of shit yeah. <laughs> <laughs> after, um, after, you know, a, a given period of time. Yeah. And, and this, this is a downward, it's a downward spiral. You know, I mean, you might think, oh yeah, you know, I, if, if I don't do something about that in two years, I'm going to be worthless. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot faster than that. You know, if you allow yourself to think like that for even more than a month or two in this business, man, yeah. you're going to have a real hard time clawing yourself out. So self-awareness is so, so important. Yeah. I can't even begin to overemphasize that. Yeah. Yeah, man. Um, that, that's, that's really valuable. And, you know, I guess something that you can, uh, I guess if there's any silver lining in, going through uh, what you've been through uh, like professionally and otherwise is that it's another thing that you have perspective on to pass on to the next generation of players. Like if, if you will not be the, the last, you know, musician to uh, experience um, uh, a situation where the, our employer uh, does not see eye to eye in terms of their, our value, you, you know, you will not be yeah. the last person. So that's just another thing that you get to, um, give some perspective on in terms of just keeping your sanity throughout the process, how you can step up and like be a leader in that process, whether it's for the players or just for yourself or, or the whole orchestra as a whole, whatever. So, um, and yeah, you know, that, that's, that's cool. Cause it's, it's, it's interesting. Cause, um, this, this, your, I would say your generation of tuba players, um, Obviously, it's it's just so different than um, guys who who came before you, and I, and I would say the biggest is um, just being a little bit more active in um, uh, just speaking up, just speaking up on stuff, and uh, uh, I guess something that like like uh, you know we had a conversation sometime during the pandemic because you we were talking and um, it was really like pleasant to, to hear you, um, say that, you, or, you know, say that you felt that you had a responsibility as a teacher at the very least to be, um, aware that, uh, yeah. your students who might be of this gender or of this color, or, you know, just in general that like different people have different experiences, just like that basic understanding. And, yeah. um, that's interesting. I mean, if you if you want to talk uh, about that a little bit, but just like, I guess your journey of just like, uh, you know, because you're, I, I know you had a hand in the tuna tuba. I said tuna, Jesus, <laughs> tuba euphonium 
um, like the the social justice. I know I'm like butchering the name. Um, it's a there's like a Facebook page yeah. for it, and I guess it's like a it might be a whole organization now. But um, I guess right. just start from like when you just realized that within music there was like this inequality to some degree on some level. So I'll, I'll you know I'll, I'll let you take the floor on that. Oh sure. I mean. I guess to some extent it's kind of obvious, isn't it? I, to be to be honest, you know, this isn't something that I've talked about a lot uh, recently. But I mean, I don't know if I went. I, I think I could probably count on one hand the number of black musicians I went to school with. Yeah, you yeah. know, to be totally honest, and I, I always thought that was kind of fucked up. You know, yeah. <laughs> like. And I, that's not to say that I, I knew who to blame, mm -hmm. um, and maybe I still don't, uh, but I, I at least now know some ideas about how to make it better. Yeah. Um, but I always, I always thought that was really kind of screwed up. And then, you know, every orchestra that I've played in um, has certainly not had more than two black musicians. Yeah. Um, and of course, the number of uh, Hispanic musicians um, or Latinx, depend, depending on your preference, yeah. um, is, you know, uh, also been fairly low, um, not quite as low, but yeah, I, I always kind of thought that was fucked up. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think that sort of informs, um, my, my view on that and, you know, sort of the, some of the work that I've done to help that along. Certainly right now, um, there's, there's a lot of that work going on at the BSO. Um, and uh, unfortunately, not a lot of it is public facing, but it will be in the not so distant future. Mm. Um, and I, I think that I am hopeful that you're going to see a lot of really positive uh, stuff resulting from that. Certainly our program uh, for next year looks a lot more representative than it did in years past. So that's, that's definitely a, a good, uh, step forward. Um, there's still a lot of work to do. There's so much work to do and, you know, it, we may never be done. And that's, that's just the reality of it. Um, yeah, it's, it's in a way, it's the same thing that women went through when they first tried to get work, um, playing in orchestras and it's what they're still going through. To be honest, they're still, um, a lot of sexism, although it's not as I would submit that it's not as pervasive as it once was. Mm -hmm. There's still a lot of sexism in, you know, symphony orchestras. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that um, all that stuff is basically fucked up. I yeah. mean, the fact that the Vienna Philharmonic didn't even have a woman musician until the 1980s. Right. I and mean, then it was just one, their harpist, right? Yeah. For so many so many years uh, until that finally sort of uh, became a little bit more, a little bit more representative um, is, you know, it's, it's, it's weird. It's, it's, it's weird that it, 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 it happened, that it took that long. It's weird that it's only now after, you know, being uh, uh, the, the fire, the, the fire that was kindled by the horrible murder of George Floyd um, started that, you know, we finally, all, all these orchestras waking up and being like, oh, wait, we're like mostly are all white and maybe a little bit Asian. It was like, you know, um, so yeah, I, you know, 
to, to me, it's, it's kind of common sense, you know? Yeah. I mean, the fact that people look at our stage and we only have one black musician on there is just like, well, but, but why, yeah. <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> isn't there something that, you know, can be done to make that better. And, you know, for us, it's not necessarily, you know, we can't just fire people and then replace them with other people. You know, um, we have to, you know, really interrogate our audition process, right? We have to try to figure out a way so that bias plays no role or as little a role as possible. Um, ideally, it would be no role in the process so that, you know, um, uh, BIPOC people who audition for the orchestra feel like they have the same chance as uh, the white person, you know, who is coming in there as well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that, that is, that is the sort of stuff that we're doing. Um, certainly with, uh, the two of you social justice initiative, uh, which by the way, I, I have to clarify, I wasn't ever ad formally advising. I was, I was actually just sort of, um, I was talking with Brendan Ige for a little while, mm. who's the group's president and, you know, just sort of at, at one point I talked to him on the phone for a while and, and I said, you know, all this injustice and inequity that you feel right now, um, I've learned over the years, you know, because if you look at something like the Women's March, right, you know, mm. our version today of putting something together is to get really riled up about it, right, and post about it on Facebook and turn it into this huge, massive event, right? You know, and it's really great. Right. And you, you know, like in June and July, you know, we had all we had all these peaceful BLM protests, you know, and there were obviously, you know, there was some rioting and whatever. But, you know, there's a lot of evidence to show that that was not caused by BLM people. It was actually caused by, uh, you know, right wing counter demonstrators. Anyway, yeah. so we had all these, you know, uh, peaceful protests. And um, it was this movement that swept across the country. And of course, the ramifications are still happening. But nevertheless, it inevitably petered out. And if you look at like the civil rights movement in the 1960s, there was a lot more lasting power to the actual protests that were going on, to mm. the actual visibility of the movement. And the reason for that is because basically because the internet didn't exist mm. back then. Yeah. Right. And so, the the power of what was happening back then was a lot more in the grassroots, right? People were basically having phone captains calling their neighbors and saying, you know, this is this is when the next thing's going to happen, and this is when the next meeting's going to happen, and please be there, and all this stuff, and that had lasting power over three or four years that eventually resulted in the civil rights bill. Now, of course you know, that was a flawed bill. And of course, it didn't do nearly enough to fix the centuries of inequity in this country. But, you know, it, it, it was, a, again, a step in the right direction. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, uh, that's what I was advising to Brendan to do. And, you know, basically get organized, make sure this has lasting power. And, uh, and that's pretty much exactly what he did. I'm, I'm super... Um, I, I don't know if I should say proud of him because that might sound patronizing, but, um, 
you know, for lack of a better word, I guess I'll just say that. Yeah. Um, it, it really, you know, he's really, you know, created something that is going to last a really long time and is, I think is going to do a lot of good um, towards furthering um, uh, diversity, equity, and yeah, inclusion. I mean, not to use an overused uh, term, but mm-hmm. yeah, to, to further DEI within the tuba and euphonium community. So, no. um, yeah, that's, that's, you know, and, and I, I, I also relied on my, um, uh, background serving on boards, uh, in like my previous orchestra serving on committees, you know, to sort of say, you know, you want to really organize almost in the way a union organizes, right. You yeah. want to really make sure that you have a board that, you know, is holding you accountable and that, you know, you are planning a vision for the future and all this other stuff. So, that was um, that was sort of how that began. But again, I wasn't advising the group myself. I was just talking to him and saying, "Well, I think this is what you can do." And, and you know, he took me seriously. Um, and for better or worse, uh, you know, uh, that's that's what it, it turned into. So yeah, um, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I just I, I honestly have always felt that it's really fucked up. Uh, you know how this has sort of gone on. And, um, so yeah, that's, that's how, where, where we find ourselves today. Um, I was certainly galvanized by, uh, you know, the murder of George Floyd. Um, you know, it, it was really, it really made me wake up. I mean, I'd always felt that there was racial inequity in this country, but then I started, you know, hearing about all that stuff a lot more. And I, I started reading about redlining and all that other stuff. Um, and so, yeah, now, now I'm certainly a much more educated person, though I could certainly do a heck of a lot more. So, yeah, yeah. um, that sort of is where I'm at right now. Yeah, no, that, that's a, uh, a really great, just kind of explanation of, of everything and, and just like your perspective on it. And yeah, man, it's, it's weird. Cause, and, and that's why I started off by saying your, your generation is just, um, very different. Obviously, um, someone like uh, Carol it probably did not look like any tuba player like before her in terms of um, you know winning this this big job and and being like a major, I guess, uh, uh, figure in in the in the tuba scene. I, I think just brass scene in general. And um, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. it's interesting just because like. I've always wondered just, obviously, you know, I'm a black person myself and I, I've always wondered because like I'll, I'll hear uh, and not even like just to, to point her or like Carol and just like other uh, musicians, whether it's they're women or, 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 or people. And I guess Carol, just because being a tuba player, uh, I'll probably hear more about her from other tuba players. But just like comments that like whether whether like negative or neutral, um, it's like why 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 you you hear this person they sound fucking amazing why are we like discussing uh their gender right now like for any reason like for literally for any reason and unfortunately like so much of it was um uh uh negative and um anyway i mean and that 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 goes for like like you know my previous teacher velvet brown uh, a black woman so i mean that's a, a double fucking whammy of like i guess shit you can just say um, uh, about a person and like, you know, uh, 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 hinting at like, um, 
things being easier for people that look this way or that are this gender, or this color, because like they don't have to. It's, it's, it was just, I just remember just being a young brass player and um, um, I guess I had spent more time uh, around, besides Dan uh, Trahey, he's, um, I think you and him are the same age, and I, but I guess like most of my brass experience had been more of like an older crowd where like um, up until like 20, 20, like when I was 20 or 21, um, the, the brass world in general just felt super, super conservative. Um, uh, and then I just met like younger players like yourself that like weren't, you know, obviously you're older than me, but you're nowhere near like that era um, of, of, you know, guys. And, and it was just, I don't know, it's just a breath. Your, your generation has been a breath of fresh air in the sense that like, you know, I mean, who, who's perfect? You guys might not be perfect, but it's such a huge difference from like the generation above, just in terms of like awareness of all this shit. So, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, anyway, I guess to, to just go in like a whole, um, other direction, I think this, uh, next thing I'm kind of wondering is more so for me, but, um, (laughs) go for it. I would, I would, I would, uh, I've always just wondered this in like, Maybe it's nothing. Maybe like you expect it to be a big moment and it just ends up being like another day. But can you in detail describe like when you woke up, um, just like the after, I guess the first gig you had with the BSO after winning the job, you you know, you wake up, you realize like, okay, like it starts today. And just like, just what you felt, just like what all that was. I, I, I wonder about like what that will be like for me one day, if, you know, hopefully I get there. Just what, what was that like? Well, I'll, I'll, dude, I'll just tell you, I was a fucking mess. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> because it's not because I was fired from BSO. I mean, in, in a way, it's kind of good that I didn't realize just how high quality the BSO was. I mean, I had grown up listening mm. to recordings of the orchestra and, you know, David Zimmerman and, and Tim Rakanov and all this stuff. And they were always very good. Uh, very good. And I, I appreciated that. Um, but I, I didn't realize just how high, you know, how much this orchestra, how high this orchestra punched um, until I started flying with um, and even then it took me a couple of weeks to be like, wow, this orchestra is amazing. Um, so my first week with the orchestra, um, I was, uh, supposed to be playing a gala. And the thing about this gala <laughs> was that we found out about the rep, I think maybe four weeks before. And I'd know the rep for the rest of the season, so I'd been actively practicing that for only months, you know. Um, but the gala, we found out the rep for about four weeks before. And not only was the rep what it was, but the rehearsal schedule was rehearsal the evening before, rehearsal the afternoon before, and then the gala. And the rep was, uh, among other things, Till Owen Spiegel in American in Paris. <laughs> mm, and that was my debut with the BSO. Two rehearsals on that and go and play the gig. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I was, I was like, 
scared as hell that I was going to fuck it up and that uh, that would set the uh, tenor for the rest of my uh, first season with the orchestra. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was game time and you know, it, it ended up going pretty well actually. Um, because I, you know, just done a shit ton of preparing and, yeah. and was in good shape for it. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's how that first week went. Yeah. Yeah. That's insane. Uh, well that and the strike vote. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean that first season, I don't know if you remember this, but that first season was fucking bonkers as yeah. far as the rep went. You know, you yeah. remember that? There I do. Was, there was a Vaughn Williams four in there. There was a Copeland three. There was, uh, you know, uh, Taranga Leela and Brahms two and Shostakovich 11 and Scheherazade and a whole bunch of movies, the planets, you know, there's, yeah. there's, uh, uh, oh God, um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm just trying to remember. I mean, at this point, it was a little while ago. Oh, there was a Prokofiev six in there. There was uh, a Nielsen four. You Jeez, know, I mean, yeah. it was it was such just like a gangle of repertoire. Yeah. Um, you know, so in, in a way, you know, you 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 just can't end up being, you know terrified or nervous or anything like that because you know i mean after a while you're, it's just beaten into you i mean yeah. you know we do as you know we do usually three or four concerts a week and um uh you know you're just on you just you're just living on stage yeah so eventually it's just like all right this is just this is just work <laughs> and you know i could fuck up hard today but these people are still stuck with me for the next you know however yeah. many months until they decide whether i'm going to get tenure so that in a way that takes a lot of the pressure off yeah. and you know it, you you have to work through the mental side of that which you talked about a little while ago you know you have to really convince yourself to do your best to serve the music but not care about the outcome yeah um and and that's that's super you know you, you sort of have to do a little bit of a mental um, loop-de-loop to make that make those two sides of your brain come together. But when you do it, you know, that's when you're doing your best performances and that's when you're showing up to work and just, you know, playing the music and living in the moment. Right. Yeah, man, that that's well, you know, it's it's comforting and both frightening to know that like that like do I belong here feeling kind of never <laughs> goes away. Um so that's good. Well, that's well I got to I got to tell you COVID <laughs> has totally fucked all that up, right? Because mm. you know, uh, we're right now we're we're going to work and every week that we're there, you know, we're recording and instead of having four rehearsals, we're having three and everything's distanced. And we have, you know, um, we have all sorts of uh, uh, different circumstances that we're dealing with every time we're on stage. And so just trying to recall all the things that made for a successful performance in the past for me personally, but for us as a collective is it's it's next level challenging. And, and it, to be honest with you, I mean, you know, I've been back at work for four, five, five of the last six weeks. And I'm, man, I'm still figuring it out. Mm. Um, now, I think it would be a lot easier if I was in the chair playing three concerts a week with our normal setup, 
you know, everybody, everybody near me, you know, Randy on my right, instead of, you know, 14 feet away on my left. Yeah. Um, but you know, uh, you still have to try to do your best to figure it out. Um, so it's, it's a totally different environment and I gotta be honest. I mean, it's just a struggle like every day going in there, just like being like, okay, what am I missing now? What do I have to figure out how to bring back this week? Um, and, and there, there are good weeks where you like leave work. You're like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm getting more in shape and I'm ready to be back at work and all that sort of stuff. And there are other weeks where you finish that week and you're like, I'm so not ready to be back at work. I still have to do this and this yeah. and this and that. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's, it's this incredible, uh, you know, sort of upward, um, uh, uphill battle mm. to try to figure out, okay, you know, um, this is what I need this week to try to make myself a little bit better. Yeah. And part of the problem is that, you know, after next week, there's no more tuba, you know, for the rest of the season um, because of the distancing stuff. Right. Yeah. So uh, there's, there's a, a three weeks with Marin, but they're all outdoors and with limited uh, stage size. So, you know, they're doing stuff that doesn't involve the tuba. And then after that, I'm going to Brevard and that'll be a whole different, you know, sort of, uh, experience, uh, sort of relearning how to play the tuba there. Um, so, and it's not that I haven't been practicing this whole time. I've been practicing (laughs) my ass off, Yeah. but you know, um, it's not, I've not been in a concert hall for most of it, which is a complete contrast to most of my life, most of my professional life leading up to now. Um, and I, um, you know, uh, I haven't been playing with other people. You know, so I'm not really getting an idea of how I sound other than to my own ears. Yeah. Um, so, you know, crawling out of that sort of weird um, place is yet another challenge. Um, but, you know, I got to be honest, it, it is kind of it's it's frustrating, but it's also kind of fascinating yeah. to be doing this because there's there's just so much extra stuff that needs to happen versus when you just go back to the job after five weeks of being away and you're just starting another season. Um, so that's pretty much what, what I'm dealing with. Yeah. And that's, that's crazy. And, and, you know, like no disrespect to, um, like when I say everyday jobs or regular jobs, I don't mean like they're insignificant, but like, I guess to go, you know, if you're, if you've been doing paperwork or something, you know, in that nature, um, that's, uh, you know, it's not a high pressure job per se. Maybe it's just, you know, tedious or long hours. And now it's like, okay, I got to switch back from like doing this in my kitchen or living room or whatever to now like going back and going to do that in the office. Like that, that's one thing. But I think um, like going back to something that is very, very high intensity, very high pressure um, after not, like, I mean, because you can, like you said, I mean, you can be in there practicing the music and the excerpts and stuff, but like no ensemble experience for damn near a year. Um, no, nothing even close to like what playing in a hall or playing in a tux is like, you know, and, and, yeah. and um, so, yeah, I mean that mentally it, it's, it's, yeah, I can't even, I can't even um, imagine in terms of like, like just immediately coming back and, um, you know, and of course, there are there really are no like like once you 
once you're paying your bills or your mortgage playing an instrument, like there literally is just no excuse to not be absolutely incredible. Um, and I totally like, 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 <laughs> yeah. like, like, like I get it. Like I, I, I get it, but, um, still mentally, that's just gotta be such a, um, such a ride, man. And, and staying in shape, uh, mentally and obviously, um, on the instrument throughout the pandemic, um, because I, I don't think, I don't think I, there, you know, there's people who are very inspired and motivated all the time, but, um, I don't care who you are, like, like whether you had one second or like the, just this entire time that we're, we're, we've been in the pandemic, like you at some point just like, were like, damn, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm pretty bummed out right now. Like, like, you know, I oh, think yeah. we, we all had like different, you know, durations of that. But that had to happen. Like if you're if you're if you're alive and um, anyway, so yes, I can imagine that for anyone who has any kind of job, coming back is going to be crazy. But you know, and, and I think you're you're probably the closest thing to what it must have been like coming back. Um, for you know, I think the NBA players are a good example. They played in that bubble, and then um, to kind of get things back on like a more. Um, they couldn't have as long as an off season uh, because it had already gone like out into such a um, so way longer than they usually end. Um, and uh, I, th- I remember them coming back just being like, you know, this is for a different reason, but them just being like, you expect us to come back at this super high level. We're drained both physically and mentally. And um, these are like millionaires that can go anywhere they want, do anything they want. And they basically like lived in dorms <laughs> for, for three or four months and had to play at the highest level. So to me, like that's like the closest experience to what it must. I feel like you guys are the closest experience to that in the sense that, you know, just this high pressure, high intensity thing. Um, so, yeah, man. I mean, again, hats off uh, to you. Sounds like you're back at the job doing, you know, well and, and the very best that you can. And hopefully like everyone else is, is um, I guess, and on that level is, is doing that too. Um, yeah. And, you know, just before we get you out of here, um, something I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, is, there, is there a tuba part that... Um, like you always underestimate or that like is always underestimated by all tuba players? Oh yeah. I mean, I don't know about all tuba players. Um, I have to think about that for a second. You know, what's interesting is that um, if you're playing there, there's definitely, there are definitely tuba parts that are always different Mm. in the orchestra from how you play them as excerpts, for example. And one of the best examples of that is Prokofiev five. Um, it's a totally different ball game, you know, because uh, the blend, the amount of blending that you have to do with everybody uh, who you're playing with at any given time on stage. And, you know, the, as most people who play the tuba know, the tuba part is a chameleon in that piece. So, you know, you're going from playing with the low horns to playing with the strings to playing with um, just the basses to playing with the woodwinds to playing with the trombones. Um, so, you know, um, you try to show that a little bit in how you play when you play the excerpts, you know, the, the classic excerpts that you're playing alone as part of an audition. But when you're doing it with the orchestra, 
it's a totally, totally different feeling. It's a totally, you have to really pay attention a lot more to the timing. Mm. You know, you've got to watch the principal bass player's bow. You've got to really, you know, then key into the sound of the horns. And since they're all the way on the other side of the stage, you should probably damn well make sure that you're on top of the beat when they're playing, mm. right? Because you're, you play the tuba and it takes just that much longer for the sound to come out. Um, so that that one always sort of gets me a little bit, um, and you know, I mean, if you're doing pictures at an exhibition, it, does, it really doesn't matter how many times you've played Bidlow. Um, you know, when that moment comes up, um, it's largely going to depend on, you know, how big of an orchestra you're dealing with, what the conductor's tempo is, um, and you know, what what what's the sound of the hall sound like to you, yeah. you know? Um, and then you've got to adjust to that. And that that never happens organically. I mean, it might happen if you're playing it with the orchestra that you always play with and the hall that you always play with. I, I haven't played with an orchestra, you know, long enough to have that sort of, you know, yeah. uh, just died in the bull experience playing yeah. something like Bidlow. Maybe at some point I will, but... Um, you know, until then, every time it comes up, it's an adjustment. Um, so, yeah, I mean, th it's a really good question. Um, I'm just trying to think of any others that sort of pop uh, into my head. Um, but I'm not thinking of anything right now. You know, there's, there are plenty of excerpts that translate well to the orchestra. You know, if you're playing Berlioz, it's pretty easy, you know. Yeah. Um, you, you more or less play in the orchestra the same way you play the excerpt. At least the way I teach students to play the excerpt. Mm. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's cool, that, man. Th those are the two that come, are sort of top of mind. Yeah. And then uh, my my last thing, um, I guess I'm, I'm or it's kind of like a two-part thing, but um, yeah. one, can you remember a moment um or a or or this play, maybe this player like every time they play there that it's always there. But like, was there ever is there a moment where you're listening to another um, to a player and just like just absolutely blown away? Whether that's just by like technical ability, musicality, but like, is there like a a, a moment that just stands out where you're just like, damn, like, am I ever gonna catch that? <laughs> I mean, I don't know if that moment exists for me anymore mm. um but when i was younger you know I, I distinctly remember listening to somebody like jeff anderson for example mm. you know his sound is so uh, just easy and full and warm and all that stuff and you know i remember listening to him play in in san francisco and it was it was just like it was always that, you know, it was so special. Um, my, one of my old teachers, Dave Kirk, same deal, just that sound of the instrument, the, the sound that he would produce on the tube, the ease of the sound production was so, you know, just sort of remarkable. And before that, of course, Ron Bishop had his own sort of version of his sound that really um, was... Um, just totally unique. It was maybe one of the darkest sounds, but it was also more of a compact sound mm. uh, that really blended 
with the sound of the orchestra better than anybody I think I've, I had heard before since. Mm. Um, so, you know, I mean, that sort of, to, to be honest, that sort of inspired me to, you know, sort of figure out how to become a, uh, I guess, a definer of my own sound. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I, I listen for things in my sound that help to give me, um, to people who are listening to me, a sort of distinct sense of what I sound like. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's that's basically where it is. Um, many of you who know me know that I'm not that much of a sort of tuba jock. Yeah. Um, I, I love the instrument, but I'm not really too blown away by technique or anything like that. I mean, there and I've I've come to accept that there are a lot of things that I that other people can do that I will never be able to do. Yeah. And that's that's totally okay. Sometimes I try to do those things, and you know I get better at them, but I'll never get to do I'll never be able to do them at the level of the person who I'm listening to. Mm. And that that's totally fine because, you know, I am where I am and I'm pretty happy with where I am. So yeah. uh you know, that's that's fine. Um and and I can do all that stuff. You know, I, I can do some of the tuba jock stuff and I can, you know, be really virtuosic and you know you can just Google my name and, and you'll find stuff like that. But I'll never be, you know, up there, uh, you know, playing Carnival of Venice and just like throwing in improv notes or, you know, <laughs> playing Carnival of Venice down five octaves or something. Yeah. That's, that's just not something that I'm able to do. Uh, and I probably never will be yeah. able to do that. Yeah. And then I guess um, uh, that like the, the second part of that question was, was there a moment um, in your own playing um, obviously the goal is to play at 100% every single night. Was there ever, have you had a night and this just goes like, like it doesn't even have to be BSO days necessarily, just ever all time where yeah. you're just like, damn, I sounded really, really good tonight. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, there are certainly recordings that, you know, uh, I've made since I got to the BSO, um, not formal, you know, um, albums or anything, but, you know, recordings that have gone on the radio, uh, that, uh, you know, I listen, I'm just like, wow, that, that sounds amazing. When we did Copeland three in my first season, that was terrific. Um, it really sounded super clean. Um, just great brass great low brass playing all around, all the way around and great brass playing, yeah. but great low brass playing all the way around. We did a Helden Laban that same year. And that was uh, a really superlative performance. And this past year, actually a couple of the things that um, have gone up on sessions, uh, the BSO sessions uh, online uh, uh, recordings that we've put on, on the website on the BSO music.org website um, there's actually, you can listen to it for free. There's a recording of an educational concert that, um, the brass did. And I, I felt pretty good about the way I sounded on that. That, that sounds pretty darn nice. It's a nice representation of my playing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, there, there are definitely instances of that. Of course, there are plenty of instances where I listen back to something. I'm just like, yeah, that wasn't that great. And then I listen back to it. I'm like, oh yeah, that <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, there's certainly concerto performances like that. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, uh, and there are other concerto performances that 
you know, you walk away from it and you're just like, wow, that was, that was a lot of fun. I nailed it. Recitals that are like that, you know, where you're just playing your ass off and, you know, you walk away from it and, and it's great. Yeah. I think there's one other thing that's worth adding to anybody that's listening, which is that something that not a lot of people know about me. And I only say this because I mentioned it just a few seconds ago, uh, is that I try to do as many recitals as possible. Mm. And I'm actually just about to get back into doing that. Um, when the pandemic started, I did two, one in April, one in June. And before that, I had done one in January uh, at Florida State University and then repeated at the Army 2B funding workshop in, in uh, DC. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I try, to, I try to do as much of that as possible because it's so unbelievably important to my musical development, uh, my physical development as a player, mm. but also to, you know, I, there's so much rep out there. There is so much rep out there. And I've discovered rep that I think is actually really strong. Um, uh, so, you know, just promoting that to the Tube and Euphonium community um, and to the public in general is such it's such a big deal man i mean um if if you have a good musical sense and you're finding rep that really sounds good and and that people really enjoy listening to man i i would have to say it's really your responsibility Mm. to play it as a soloist as much as you bloody well can um so you know i mean just to name a couple of pieces um i discovered a work by a guy named james denham called Sizzle. I ended up playing that quite a bit. There's a piece that um, did not get played too often, although Mike Roylance reported it, um, but it, it hasn't seen much of the light of day since then. It's called uh, Teutonic Tales uh, by Smith. Um, and there's another piece, uh, there's an arrangement of the uh, Tchaikovsky uh, piano... I want to say fantasies. I can't quite remember if that's what it is, but it's a Ralph Sauer arrangement of this. Mm. And uh, it's, it's beautiful, man. It's, it's fucking beautiful. And it sounds great on the tuba and people love it. And so, you know, I mean, when, when I first started, you know, thinking about doing more recitals, I was like, okay, well, there's the good rep, which is, you know, mostly what I've played up until now, the rep that everybody knows. Right. And then there's like the, crappy rep you know the, the rep that doesn't really make use of the tuba yeah. or the rep that isn't really good musically or whatever it's not very interesting and i was like and, and that's it you know there's the crappy rep and there's the good rep yeah and i discovered a lot more of good rep since i started doing this and it's it's really been a joy yeah. so um i strongly encourage everybody to do the recitals. And frankly, with my high school students, I had them start giving recitals like as early as their sophomore year, you know, yeah. like full, full on recitals, man. You know, part of the method of my madness behind that. And you know, this as well as anybody, because I made you give your own recital yeah. after you had graduated Peabody. Um, the method behind my madness is that playing a recital is far more difficult than any, excerpt that you'll ever play so if you play a recital and then play an audition the audition's a cakewalk you know it's mm. easy if you play a recital and then you have to play this really hard orchestra concert guess what your orchestra concert's a breeze you know it's, it's no big deal yeah so um yeah i beyond just 
it being what I consider to be a responsibility of a professional tuba player, uh, I think that it is also something that really helps you develop as a musician. And by the way, we don't stop developing as musicians when we get into X or Y orchestra. You know, it's a lifelong thing. Yeah. Janos Starker, the famous cellist who taught at Indiana University for all those years, recorded the Bach cello suites many times throughout his life. And every time he recorded them, he said he had a different perspective on how to play them. So, wow. you know, it's, it's something that you want to continue to do until you stop playing the instrument or until you keel over. <laughs> yeah. Damn. Dude, I, I, that's, um, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously things have to, you know, open up like a hundred percent everywhere and especially right. here in LA. Um, but something I, I, I want to do is, uh, find somewhere that, um, you know, uh, like a space, maybe a church or something, if they let me use their space. And um, I would actually just want to play like 20 to 30 minutes of rep um, uh, once a month, just somewhere, just like, yeah. just, That's just right. fucking do that. And then like twice a year have like one hour shows. Um, uh, so, you know, like maybe um, the, the first three months, if it's like 20 minutes or something, then I just combine all that rap rep for like a you know a, a bigger show and I'm playing everything in there or or it could just be different every single time but um, and I say that because uh, yeah you did uh, when you were like you know you gotta play a recital gotta play a recital in my head I remember like the whole time I was just like fuck I thought I was done with this after my senior recital and um, <laughs> um, you know as we like get it got like kept getting closer and closer and closer to the, the recital. I was like, oh my God, like I, I, I realized how much I needed it because yeah. of like how nerve wracking it was as we got closer. And I was like, it shouldn't feel like this. Like, I love doing this. Why, why am I so, <laughs> why do I feel like I'm being like selected at the fucking Hunger Games right now? You know, and <laughs> like, like it shouldn't feel like that. Like I'm doing something that I love. And um, yeah, so that you're absolutely right. Like had I not been like, thrown into the fire that way, um, I wouldn't know the value of just like playing because you want to because like that duty as a performer and not because like, oh, there's this graduation requirement or like there's something coming up that's just like forcing you to like to, to play. So 100% um, agree. And um, yeah, man, and it's cool. I, I purposefully saved all the like tuba jock questions towards then because i know no one wants to hear that shit except for me and, I, and i'm not a tuba jock at all like i i right. i like have fun <laughs> and like <laughs> and um but i i like asking uh the non-jock people those questions because you're you're not the type of like you know you know like the the tuba players are just like just the the brass players that like no one even asked them that shit and they're talking about it you know like like those are the ones where it's yeah. like i wouldn't want to ask you about it because like you know i know like you have this like, there's you know this weird fanboy thing of like that like some brass players have so like for me asking you that stuff is actually fun just because i know you're not like that so it's like okay whatever comes out of your mouth is actually going to be like <laughs> I guess you know new yeah. or fresh or, or valuable. So yeah. um, anyway, cool man. I, I guess we'll you know wrap it up here. Um, yeah, this was this was uh, awesome. Uh, 
and you know, like I, uh, I don't, I don't know if you know this. I'm, I'm bringing on people from uh, just like that do anything um, and everything. Yeah. It's not even just like musicians. So, but of course, for my own selfish purposes, I'm going to bring on <laughs> tuba players and just like pick your brains. And um, so, yeah, thank you for for making the time for this. Oh, it's such a pleasure. It's so good to see you. Yeah. Um, I have to actually tell you that I am going to be in LA on uh, June 9th and 10th. So Sweet. We, should, we should get together. Yeah, 100%, man. And I, I owe you, uh, um, uh, not that that you're making me owe you, I feel like I, I owe you uh, lunch at uh, the father's oh, spot. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. office. Yeah, yeah sure. let's do it. Yep, so, so um, 100%. Um, yeah, cool, man. Well, yeah, to everyone listening, uh, this is uh, a song called Life, and uh, we're out. Peace. Peace.